Good morning, my friends out there. It is December the 4th, 2021, in the time of Bo Blimpdock. Grinkin's Eve is almost here. You cannot pinpoint the date. You will know when the three hobos come from the east. They will be following the great sign of the blue flame, flaming out above the porn kingdom east of the great river. Yes, the three hobos will stop at the fireworks and porn store off of I-80, somewhere near Evanston, right? And then they'll see the blue flame over the Rocky Mountains. They will marvel at that amazing light. The three hobos, they're coming soon. It's high noon in the age of Boblimtok. Yes, indeed, it is almost, well, no. It is more or less, if one is to think distinctly of such things, within the realm of numbers given to us by the mighty mathematical apocalypse known as COVID-19. Yes, in, in just 18 months, the people that run the world have managed to violate every principle taught to me in my quantitative sciences courses. And so, more or less, we're living in the upside-down world where you should get like an F minus on that statistics exam. But instead, the COVID monkeys telling you about the monkey herpes, the great Rona, the great Rona defies mathematics, defies logic. It's so amazing. Transcendental Statistical Mechanics Yes, the Rona invented a realm of mathematics where the improbable becomes likely, where the insignificant becomes horrifying, where the statistically, you know, the noise, where the statistically likely to be error becomes information. That's right. In the age of Rona, the error becomes information. The mistake is now knowledge. But you believe whatever you want to believe, folks, because it's getting so close to the next step on this particular road that I don't really, yeah, I don't give a fuck. You can believe whatever nutty, sideways, illogical nonsense you want to. It's so great being this close. I... I wonder if in some way I'm feeling a little bit like that guy I've spoken about in the past, Harry Truman. No, not the fucking president. I mean the guy that died with his fucking cats on Mount St. Helens. If anybody captured the spirit of what I'm feeling right now, it's that old codger motherfucker who probably flew into space with his cats in a chunk of the earth, heading towards Pluto, in a cave. The fungi produce oxygen. He has some type of containment. 
he and his cats are still alive drinking whiskey and eating canned beef stew and scruffling whatever water they can off the ice of interplanetary space. Soon, soon we will, in that proverbial or figurative sense, soon many of us will feel like that Harry Truman dude sitting on top of an active volcano about to explode. You and me and our 17 or whatever, 23 cats. Yeah, 23 fucking cats. I don't know how many cats he had. I think I read once he had 17 cats. He had a lot of cats. And I know it's not plausible that he's drifting towards the stars, but wouldn't it be nice if in that great volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens 40, you know, fuck, 40 Boblimptok more or less years ago, wouldn't it be great over these last 40 years, Harry Truman, formerly cabin codger, living on top of Mount St. Helens, now interplanetary drifter hobo, Maybe when his chunk of rock returns, maybe when that chunk was hurled into space 40 Boblimtok years ago, it was on some type of elliptical fucking journey that took it to the edge of what the fuck. But now he's coming back again. Harry Truman. His 17 cats. They're almost here. I think that's what the hobos see. The three hobos. When we see the chunk of Mount St. Helens enter Earth's atmosphere, the one that Harry Truman's living on, when we hear him on his CB radio saying, Hey there, motherfucker. I'm back again, you fuck. That will be the sign that Grinkin' Time is almost here. Yes, Grinkin' Time will be here when Harry Truman and his 17 fucking cats return on that interplanetary chunk of Mount St. Helens hurled into space 40 Boblimtok years ago. Will he have stories to tell of aliens? Will he have had sexy journeys with green or blue women, will he have learned the knowledge of deep space? Will he have visited Mars, taking a step down? Will he have visited Jupiter, saying, hello, Jupiter? Yeah, I don't know about Harry and his cats traveling through space. I don't know if it's a sign of the Boblimtok that that chunk of Mount St. Helens shall return. And when it does return with that old fuck and his cats, yeah. I mean, maybe he's gotten fucking mutated. 
Maybe his cats are fucking mutated, you know? If you watch Rick and Morty, maybe his cats are like old Squatch. Squanchy! Squ oh, I'd love to squanch that, yeah. What if Harry's coming back with his squanchy cats to squanch the fuck out of all of us? Rick and Morty, you fuck. Anyways. No, I don't know. But it is Saturday. It is December the 4th. It is more or less around 4 a.m. Just after 4 a.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Utah, where the coyote and the moose and the antelope play here in Utah. You know, people talk a lot about previous lives. They talk a lot about past lives. It's like, I went into hypnosis, Dan. I talked to my spirit guide. His name was Rod. He took me to the ancient room. He showed me the crown. I was a queen, Dan. I was a queen. In the time of fairies, in the time of elves, in the time of orcs, in the time of bugbears, I was a queen, Dan. You ever notice how mostly when you hear about people's past lives, mostly, they're never really ordinary people. And even if they are, like, I was the washerman to Napoleon. I was Teddy Roosevelt's long-lost niece. So even when they are people that are ordinary, they're in these ridiculously extraordinary situations. Very rarely is it, oh, I was old Milgus, and I's the, I's the guy that cut out the guts of the fish, and then when I turned 23, I, yeah, I died of tuberculosis. Um, we called it consumption. That was my life. Very seldom is it like that. You know, usually if you are Milgus, the fishmonger's slave, usually, um, you know, when they tell that story, well, I was Milgus, the fishmonger's slave, in the time of Henry V. And Agincourt... And I went with Henry to the French people. I shot the arrow. I, you know, I wielded a sword. No, you didn't, Milgus. You just died when you were 23 of, of tuberculosis or some type of horrible infectious disease, probably bubonic plague. But the point is, you lived a short life, you emptied the guts of fish, and then you died. Very rarely when people remember past lives do they remember it like that. I mean, even if, oh, I was a, I was a newspaper delivery boy in 1941 Boblim Yes... On December the 7th, 1941, Bob Limtok 
when wild when wild bill cody when wild bill cody killed john f kennedy and started world war ii i was just a newspaper boy yeah i know I know that's a version of history that never happened, but do you ever think the version of history you've been given is total bullshit? Sometimes I do these days. Anyways, I'm going to tell you something. I was out, you know, in the high mountain passes of Utah, the Uinta Mountains, a few, a few days ago. I was in the high mountain passes hunting bear, hunting the flesh of the earth to feed the dogs that I have, the dogs of the spirit. I was foraging for the nougaty center of what's left of this living pile of grunkus. I was wandering the various valleys and, and, you know, yeah, whatever, meadows of fucking Utah. And I encountered a woodland shaman. I said, Mr. Shaman, have I lived many lives? And he looked at me and he nodded. I said, Mr. Shaman, would you tell me the story of my life? And he pointed at my 12-pack of beer. And I said, Mr. Shaman, you fuck. I'll give you a couple beers if you tell me about a few past lives. One beer for every past life. And he, and he, he nodded. And so we sat down by a fire in the Uinta Mountains and he began talking in weird kinds of languages. The shaman told me that in a previous life, I was a whale herder. Yes, in a previous life, when I lived as an Aztec general, I was ordered by the emperor to herd all the whales. I was ordered to gather the whales, all the humpbacks, all of the greys, all the orcas, all of them. Yes, in a previous life, I was an Aztec general known as Quadiquopal, and I herded the whales up the Mississippi River. I moved the whales from Scompton up the Mississippi all the way to Mount to Montana to be harvested by the Dwelbic peoples. We harpooned the freaks. We killed the heroes. We left their carcasses in the swamps not far from St. Louis. If you dig there now, 
If you dig underneath the Walmart there in St. Louis, you'll find the bones. And don't say which Walmart because you're being a dick. Maybe every single one is built on whale bones. That was my job. I had one job. To herd the whales as General Conecopo, and I did so for the Emperor so long ago. And so I gave the fucking shaman a beer. Next thing, shaman said, did you know in the 1920s, you fuck, he said. He said, you motherfucker, that old shaman hadn't had a beer in a while, I could tell, because he was already getting the lip. He said, you old fuck in the 1920s, you were a barber. You were a barber in Chicago. In the 1920s, you cut Al Capone's hair. He shot your wife in the 1920s. Yes, in the 1920s, you fuck. You cut Al Capone's hair. You, he shot your wife, that old fucking shaman told me, as he finished off my third PBR. He said, did you know you fuck as he started number four? Did you know that in the olden times, when your people rounded up mine... Back in the old west, back in the old times, you were a family doctor. You were a family doctor. Living in old El Paso, you killed an engine, and you were cursed by his tribe. You've been cursed ever since, you fuck, that old shaman said as he finished off my fourth PBR. You've been cursed ever since those times you killed that damn engine in old El Paso, you fuck. Then the shaman grabbed his fifth beer, and I looked upon him with a scowl. He slowly cracked it open as a raven flew over. He majestically looked into the distance as the sun was setting upon the mountains, upon the cold. The snow was gently falling, and you could tell that motherfucker shaman was already jaded. He said, Dan, in the 1890s you were a farmer in Iowa. In the 1890s, your dog, 
a good old golden retriever got the rabies and it ate your baby. It ate your baby boy. So you had to shoot that dog. And it hurt inside, didn't it? It hurt inside your heart. It hurt so deeply. It was like a stake, a wooden stake through your heart. That's what the shaman said as the eagle flew over, as the sun went down over the horizon and it was gone. Those are my past lives. I never was a general with Alexander. I never met Caesar. I never, you know, fucked Marilyn Monroe, though I would have loved to. I never flew in a plane with, what's her name, Amelia Earhart. I never fought in the Civil War against the South or the North. They both sucked. I was never a guy who worked for a king. I was never a king. I was never anything. I was just an ordinary, everyday schmuck being tossed about through history. And that's the truth for everyone. If you have a past life, if such things exist, and as a Christian, I don't believe in them. But if you do believe in past lives, let me say this. Statistically speaking, if you're using the math of COVID-19, you were a queen, you were a wizard, you were a bugbear, you were the chieftain of bugbears. If you apply the math and logic of COVID-19, of course you were Caesar, you were Napoleon. If you use regular, regular old-fashioned logic and math, you were probably just a schmuck. That's what the math says. Now, of course, I, I just, you know, I ruined your LARPing, your society for creative anachronism. Why don't you go dress up in your pointy hat and have your wooden sword fights and play pretend? I don't give a fuck. Go to your Renaissance fair. Eat, eat, eat your schmugglies and conduct whatever human experiments existed in the time of retroactive, retrobactive, backwards thinking. I don't care your past life. You should care about the life in front of you, though. This is the ice cream cone. It is your only one. If you want to play pretend, that's your choice, isn't it? This is your ice cream cone. If you want to spend your whole life playing video games and playing pretend, that is your choice. And if you can do so without harming others, I don't know what to tell you. Obey God's will. Try to be a good person. But if you want to play act your whole life, you can. Just remember that it is your life and it's singular. It's yours and there's one of them. You probably weren't a queen or a king. You probably weren't even Milgus the fishmonger. Whatever life you have now is the one you got. That's the horrible, horrifying truth that goes against all the satanic bullshit 
of the new agey bullshit and the robot bullshit and they'll stick your brain into a computer bullshit. This is your one fucking life. You've got one fucking chance and it's up to you. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's your fucking ice cream cone. If you want to take it and shove it up against the wall, you can. I would suggest you don't hurt anybody in the process, but that's up to you. This is your one life. Live it as best you can, but don't pretend it's going to be perfect. Next topic. And in some ways, this next topic is related to the holiday season. It'll seem a bit strange to, to relate it that way, but it is. Um, this is a quote from Dr. Freckles. There's no way to be right about bad news. Dr. Freckles. Um, I've spoken about this in the past when my sister Nancy was dying of cancer. Uh, I and another sibling were involved in meetings with doctors and whatnot. And I and another sibling were sitting with her oncologist one day. It was me, another sibling, my sister Nancy, and the oncologist. And the oncologist looked at my sister and said, Nancy, are you sure you want to know the truth? Yeah. Are you sure you want to know the truth? And that's a sticky topic. There are people who would say, well, you know, you shouldn't tell the truth because if you tell the truth, a person's going to just whatever. But here's the deal. At that very moment, when that doctor said, are you sure you want to know the truth, given the context, given the way human reasoning functions, at that moment, that fucking doctor told Nancy everything she needed to know. You know, if it's good news, you don't usually say, are you sure you want to know you're in complete remission? Nobody ever does that. They usually say, are you sure you want to know when the truth is something kind of fucked up and bad and not something you really want to know. But I will say this, you should still tell the truth if that is what you're being paid to do. As a doctor, it is your job to provide a diagnosis. You can provide sugarcoating if you want to, but at the end of life, Gaslighting people and fucking with them is not right. So I don't give a fuck what a person's philosophy might be. What that doctor did was wrong. Okay? You tell the fucking truth. You don't play mind games with people who might only have a couple weeks left to live. That's what shitbirds do. That's not what a good doctor does. And if you just notice the background noise, that's the heater kicking on. It is that winter time. And we got that heater kicking on. And it's pumping air. And we do need the heat. There's no way to be right about bad news. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, I'll tell you what. 
and it's one of the reasons why I don't regret the fact that this year, like last year, I'm more or less eschewing much or most of the holiday season. Because people will ask me questions like, well, Dan, what do you think is going to happen? In 2019, you know, a couple years ago, I told people that food would be an issue soon. This was before the monkey herpes. This was before all the, the crooked, sideways, military, psychological warfare. It, I think it was at Thanksgiving, perhaps at Christmas, but probably Thanksgiving. I said, you know what? Thanksgiving 2019, you should stock up on food. You should have six months to one year's worth of food on hand. And, you know, they said, well, how do you do that? Well, you cycle through it. You eat the old stuff first and, you know, basically first in, first out, but bottom line is you should have a one-year queue if you can and I described some basic stuff you know rice dried beans stuff like that and I got weird looks from family members and it was fine I didn't give a fuck people thought it was funny I don't really miss those conversations I don't miss any of those sideways conversations I've had in the last 10 years about the state of reality because I'm competing with their smart device. I'm competing with their, you know, tablet. And their tablet tells them that everything's great and there are no problems and perpetual motion machines are possible and you can buy Bitcoin and live in a post-scarcity butt-plug world. But the truth isn't that, though, probably. I I'll say that. And guess what? There is no way to be right about that kind of news. Let me be even more specific, because a lot of people don't fucking get it, but they will. You can have a podcast, and you can have a YouTube channel. You can have a blog. You can write emails to people. You can go down to the fucking corner and give speeches. If you are right about what's coming, and assuming you kind of see the same future I do, it doesn't matter. Because at the very moment you're proven right, you're not going to become Joe Rogan famous. You're not going to become the next Alex Jones. If I'm right about what's coming, I mean, I don't know, maybe I can play for two bits on the corner for a potato and an apple. Maybe I can crank out my fucking Roland after I've charged my batteries with a solar panel. But the fact is, if I'm right about what's coming, none of that shit's going to fucking matter. It's like the GoDaddy shit I just went through. Yeah, it pisses me off to be ripped off. Yes, it pisses me off to have thousands of hours of work destroyed. Yes, I do believe GoDaddy is an incredibly shitty company. And guess what? It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. If you're right about something that's terrible, if you're right about somebody dying, for example, it's not something to be happy about. If it's your job to tell the truth, tell the fucking truth. But you're not going to get in the... No one's going to give you a fucking award. Okay? This is the tragic fate and the tragic truth that nobody wants to accept when it comes to the future. If you make a guess about the future that has to do with doom, people will think of you as a witch. They will curse your fucking name. They will isolate you and they will push you aside. And yet I will tell you again, for the few people that had a chance to listen, 
you should you should still tell the fucking truth just like that fucking oncologist in 2012 he should have told the deliberate honest courageous truth to my sister not some fucking cowardly little mindfuck game from freshman philosophy but the actual truth blunt and real like dr freckles said there's no way to be right about bad news sorry and when I say bad news, I just don't mean like some stock will drop in price, so if you follow me, you can hedge against it. That's not really the bad news I speak of, because that's one of those bad news, good news stories. I'm talking about shit that compares to at least, you know, our good friend Harry Truman on Mount St. Helens. He built himself a cabin, he built himself a life, he had all of his fucking cats, he was towards the end of his life. If a University of Washington professor, 40 Boblimtalk years ago, picked up a fucking phone and said, Harry, you're about to die, well, sure, you're not going to get an award for that. Harry's not going to say thank you. I built my whole fucking retired life up here. I love it up here. Thank you for telling me at my ripe old age that I'm a hobo. That's not good news. That is bad news. And Harry's response was, fuck it. I lived here. I'll die here. God bless that man. He didn't give up, by the way. He chose where and how he would die. That's not giving up. That's living your fucking life. That's your ice cream cone, you fuck. But that professor who tells him that Mount St. Helens about to explode, it doesn't matter how fucking correct he is. There's no way to be right about bad news. It's like some asshole who says, there's going to be a nuclear war, okay? There was this dude going around, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, a little more than that, um, pimping a, a book strategic relocation and i forget his name but he was pimping the strategic relocation book and he said sometime in 2019 2020 boblim talk there'll be a great world war three bullshit and you better pick the right spot or you know life will be hell which is fine you know um he made that prediction but how do you really get a payoff you see Implied in his little book is you can go to a magical location and you can avoid what's about to happen. Let me tell you my perspective on that. There are better places and worse places to be. And nobody knows where they are. Let me repeat that. That deep state fuck who probably had ties to the CIA was mind-fucking his readers. If he claimed to know exactly where you could go, he might very well have been telling people where to die. I don't know. What I can tell you is as of right now, on the verge of the next thing that's about to happen, and it's not going to be good news, as of right now, there are probably better and worse places to be. But there's no magical fucking safe haven. If you think you picked a spot on the map that's safe, I will tell you something. The only person that knows how safe that is, is the Lord in heaven or nobody. Period. But if you're right about something, like saying living in a city at this point could be really risky, 
because whatever nonsense you've been hearing about urban crime, you ain't seen nothing yet. And by the way, they lie about those statistics. I, I don't, yeah, you didn't know that? Yeah, they lie. They lie. Whatever you've seen so far, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, when the grocery stores in your city are out of food for three weeks, then you'll begin to understand why living in a city at this point could be really fucking stupid. But there is zero upside to being right about this for a number of reasons, not least of which most of the people you're preaching to that you could help, their ears are closed. Their eyes cannot see. They cannot tell what's going on. They are so deeply confused. They are so deeply in the thrall of a false religion that they cannot pick up your signal. You can broadcast to them that being in a city is going to be a living hell and they won't hear anything. Those for whom the gods are about to destroy, those whom the gods are about to destroy, they first make mad. We've heard that quote before, right? And that's why, with madmen, with crazy people, there's no way to be right about bad news. If you tell them that their special reality is about to come to an end, you're basically pissing on their world. Even if you're right, you're still wrong. Next topic. So, and this is kind of on a theme here. So there's, you know, different ways of looking at the world, and I've had these weird conversations with people recently about what it means to be an optimist or a pessimist, and it's getting to be futile and stupid. But one of the things that you can do, and, and this is not original to me, um, this is a good way of taking common sense and applying it to the present and the future, but one of the ways of looking at what's about to happen, even if you live in a fucking city, is instead of thinking in terms of magic, the magic you get from the magazine, you read Wired magazine and they told you the robots will be cleaning out your butthole, don't worry about it, put down the Wired magazine, put down the New York Times. In fact, disconnect from all the media. Do yourself a fucking favor, disconnect from Facebook and Twitter, disconnect from all that bullshit. Get to know your neighbors. I said this two years ago. I said this before the monkey herpes. Get to know your fucking neighbors. If you live in a city and you can't go anywhere and you want one chance in hell, build a real network of people. Don't have these fucking Twitter networks. You don't want to be involved in that monkey fuck. Disconnect from that bullshit. The only thing that shit can do at this point to your life is drag you down. Period. If you have to do it for work, if you have to do it for some other reason, put that fucking smart device down. Get to know your neighbors. Get to know your neighbors probably within a one-mile radius. If you live in a city, you can't get to know them all. But if you can, randomly say hello. Randomly say hello. Randomly smile. Why don't you stop staring at your fucking smart device and say hello to your fucking neighbors? Because that is a smarter move at this point than any fucking thing you can do on TikTok. 
or with a podcast like what I'm doing or any of that. Get to know your neighbors. That is what's called an intelligent response to a problem. It's not magic. It's not super technology. It's something every human is capable of doing, pretty much. Getting to know your neighbors. And is it a little risky and a little scary? Uh, If you think it's risky and scary now, wait until the power's out. Try getting to know your neighbors when the power's out. Right now, you can still bake a casserole. Right now, you can still bake some cookies. Right now, you can still walk down the street. And even though people are still in this COVID military psyop bullshit dystopia, you can still say fucking hello. When the lights go out, you try that fucking shit. Build a network within your community. If the power is out, if there's not enough food, figure out basic solutions. The number one thing you will need, period, first off, other than not going crazy, is water. So make sure you have a reliable source of water. Make sure you have some stored up, to be blunt. Yeah. There are intelligent responses. There's a writer who has a blog. It's called Clusterfuck Nation. It's at Kunstler.com, and the name of the writer is James Howard Howard Kunstler. He's been a writer for many decades. Um, He wrote an essay for Rolling Stone based on a book he was releasing called The Long Emergency. I read it in 2003. And The Long Emergency referred to peak oil, the fact that we were basically reaching the point where we were nearly out of conventional oil, And what was coming next in the tranche was all this unconventional stuff. The fracking, the boiling tar sands, you know, this and that and whatnot. And we can have whatever opinions we want to about peak oil. As I've told you in the past, this is really a perspective game, in my opinion. Is it that we've run out of oil or is it that our nasty Ford pickup truck is broken? And it's so broken that no amount of fucking oil is going to keep it running. Is it that we're out of the resource or is it that we're out of ideas? From my perspective, it could be either or both. And we really don't know yet. I do know we live in a neo-Stalinist hellhole. We live in an overly complicated, overly engineered, too many fucking lawyers hellhole. And in that kind of hellhole... Yeah, the Ford pickup truck is leaky and greasy, and it gets about five gallons to the mile. So we don't really know if we're running out of something, or if the reality is the system we're using is so broke-ass broke, there isn't enough of anything to ever keep this shitty empire going. But once you get past that, what you can do is approach the perspective of Kunstler. He wrote a book called The Long Emergency, then he wrote a second book called Too Much Magic. And in Too Much Magic, he kind of outlines these weird technological responses to something that might not have an easy fix. And he proposes that instead of people um, saying, you know, what's the magic we can have that fixes this? He proposes intelligent responses instead of magical tricks. And this is a good way of looking at things. There are intelligent responses to what's coming, whatever it is. And if you want to call it peak oil, you can. I kind of call it, you know, peak broke-ass truck. 
I mean, I think it's what you know the collapse of an empire looks like, but you can also call it peak oil. The fact is the current system does not work with the inputs that it has. That is either about the inputs or the system, but how that breaks down and how you respond to it won't be about magical tricks. It'll be about being, you know, applying some wisdom and logic and having the experience to do things. Basic things like how to purify water. Simply put, it's a three-stage process. Stage one is settlement. Stage two is treatment. Stage three is final filtration. Stage one, you just need a big reservoir. It could be a, it could be a, you know, it could be one of those rain barrels. A big reservoir for settlement. This allows the sediment and other heavier than water materials to settle out of the water. Then you pump what's, you know, in the settlement tank, not with the sediment, into the treatment tank. And I think it's like, what, six drops of bleach per how many gallons? You can find that online. But you just take a few drops of bleach per so many gallons in the, in the treatment tank. That's stage two. Stage three is final filtration. That is where you use activated charcoal. You can make that yourself. You can make activated charcoal yourself. It, you can think of it as wood that becomes all glowy, but without becoming ash. Once that wood becomes glowy, you pull it out of the fire, you dry it, you put it out, you let it, you know, completely extinguish, you take the charcoal off of that, you crush it up, you put that into a clean cotton sack of some sort, you put that into a cylinder, you now have an activated charcoal filter. That is stage three. If you can follow the basic instructions I just gave you, you can save your own fucking life with the most fetid fucking water you can imagine. And if you have the power to do so, you can actually, you know, basically jump the shark to stage three just by boiling the water. But again, you might not have power. You might not have extra power. But you certainly can, be you can buy some bleach and as far as the rest of the components for making a activated charcoal filter, it really is just a cylinder with the activated charcoal in it that the water moves through. As the water moves through the activated charcoal, the activated charcoal responds to compounds in the water that would be considered toxic. So... Kunstler is right. You know, we need to think in terms of intelligent responses. I know at the Christmas party, people want to hear about the fusion energy and the deep space travel to Mars and all that other shit. And I know that it sounds great to think that that's what's going to happen. But what people really need to do is consider the possibility that their number one problems in the near future are, are at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, not the top. We've been living at the top of Maslow's hierarchy for really a bunch of decades now here in the United States, not everywhere. But here in the U.S., we've been living at the top of Maslow's hierarchy for my whole life and probably the last hundred years or so. And definitely my whole life, and that's coming to an end. So problems involving your junk, your political philosophy... Problems involving where you like to stick your junk, you know, male, female, whatnot. Problems involving perceived racism or meta-racism or transcendental commie racism. 
problems involving most of the bullshit today they describe as problems are non-problems, but they're definitely not the lower half of Maslow's hierarchy problems. And because they're not, they're not really going to be things you, you should focus on in the near future. But if you want to, you can. I mean, this is the thing. It's your fucking life. And the closer the margins get to between life and death in the near future, the more you're going to be surfing that existential reality. You do whatever you want to do. If you want to spend time on BLM Antifa nonsense when there's not enough food to eat, you go ahead and do that. I don't think it's going to help you. In all likelihood, it's going to fucking kill you. But you do you. You can live according to Christ or not live according to Christ. You can be a Satanist or an atheist. Your fucking life is yours. The only thing I request as you come close to the end is don't ask a motherfucker like me to sugarcoat it. Don't ask me to tell you that everything's going to be okay. Everything is just going to be good, bad, otherwise. And if you're not God, you don't fucking know either. So maybe it's all going to be great. Maybe it's not, but you don't know. And if you want a motherfucker like me to, to give you fantasies about fusion flying saucers that will take you to the dildo butt plug realm outside of Antarctica City, I'm probably not going to tell you that fucking story. But I'll try to just tell you the way I see it. And then if you ask me, well, then what do you do? I will do what I think people should do and what, you know, what James Howard Kunstler describes. You know, try to describe an intelligent response to a situation. Next topic. Next topic, although it's getting long in the tooth here. Here's another quote from Dr. Freckles. You own the land until your neighbors want to kill you. And, yeah. Once again, I'll, I will say that quote from Dr. Freckles again. Dr. Freckles again. You own the land until your neighbors want to kill you. Oh, damn, that's extreme. Well, let me tell you a, an extreme fucking story from an old country bumpkin from the year of 2006, Bo Blimptock. And I think it was 2006. Could have been seven, but I'm pretty certain it was six. Um, Christmas 2006. You know, I, was, I spent those Christmases at my ex-wife's home in Chicago. And it was Christmas Eve, and I'm on the L train heading from downtown Chicago out to Oak Park, which is a suburb of Chicago. And a couple young kids, and I won't say their skin color, because honestly, I think that shit's stupid too. It's not really the point. A couple of these young teenage kids who were kind of drunk and probably on drugs try to mug me on the train. And I ended up tricking them. I did. I ended up getting out of it. I, I had no interest in giving them any money. And at the time, I had more money than I do now. But I had no interest in giving it to, to any crooks, even if they were kids on Christmas Eve. 
And so I didn't give them anything. Um, I tricked them. I got off the L train and I made my way to my ex-wife's parents' home and told them the tale. And one of the responses was, well, that's just normal. Like it's normal to expect to be mugged in the city. Now, I want to stop right here. Because I know there are a lot of motherfuckers out there who bought their homes and flipped their homes and somebody told them their home's worth a million bucks. All those people that told you those things will not be there once the power's out for a month. Won't be there for the first week either. Won't be there on day one. They won't be there when people are busting through your doors. They will not be there. The cop won't be there. The accountant the fucking bank loan officer, the fucking lawyers that make sure that all those contracts are legal, none of that's going to be fucking relevant. What my ex-wife and you know ex-brother-in-law and ex-whatever, what they told me inadvertently without knowing it is some god-awful basic fucking truth. I had no right to not be mugged on the L train in Chicago on Christmas Eve. Sure, I grew up in Mount Vernon, Washington. Sure, for the most part, people weren't flaming pieces of shit. And we can have conversations about poverty all day long. Poverty's been a state of history throughout history. Lots of poor people do the right thing, and lots of poor people become criminals and victimize other poor people. I'll tell you, this you know thing is one poor person to another. The only people I'd want to steal money from are the people I'd never have the resources to do, you know to steal from. Those are the people I think deserve to be ripped off. That being said, if you live in some home someplace and you have the expectation that because you have some flimsy fucking document that you own that home, you are mistaken. And, you know, you don't have to pick up any bastardized apocryphal history of Chief Seattle to find some rational quote that just about every old Injun king would tell you, you don't own the fucking land. You rent it for a while, you steward it in reality. You are a steward to some chunk of land based on your neighbors. If your neighbors all hate you, especially after the system goes sideways and that day ain't too far off, if your neighbors all hate you, your life in that neighborhood will be a living hell. There'll be no cop you can call. There will be no city council member, anybody with any resources at that level, like any good old-fashioned parasite or rat, will have left the ship already. You are alone. Most of those motherfuckers, because they can't afford to live where you live, the sheriffs, the cops, they live in the hinterlands of King County. If you live in Seattle, they might even live further away. They're not going to help you with shit. You own the land as long as your neighbors put up with you. You own the land as long as you can defend it. You own the land as long as you can stand on it. But there is no inherent right that gives you right over any piece of fucking land. I got an email a while back about a chunk of land. Land that my father once had ownership of. But during the 80s, when he didn't have a lot of money, he sold his ownership to his brothers and sisters, to get money to take care of his family, which was good. I'm glad he did that. That's the right thing to do. You know, 
not sure how I feel about the other side of the transaction. But I will say this. After my dad did that, me, my siblings, definitely me, I got at least one or two other siblings that will testify, we felt less and less and less welcome at this old family homestead where my father grew up. Where my father grew up before he went off to fight in World War II. Where my father grew up. We felt basically unwelcome. So by the time you get to like this era of Boblim talk, we felt completely unwelcome in the last 10 or 20 years. So I get this email this year, 2021 Boblim talk, about how the Swinomish Indian Reservation is messing with them and flooding things and doing this. Oh my God, they're violating treaties. They're violating obligations. They're screwing with us. They want to steal our land. I mean, brothers and sisters, this is ostensibly white Irish people upset that the Native Americans who've been fucked with for a few hundred years might be stealing a little bit of land that, you know, probably was being used as a drop-off point during prohibition to smuggle liquor. You don't own the land, brothers. You don't own the land, sisters. If your neighbors hate your guts and there is no thug or thug army you can call to protect you from them, you can stand your ground and fight them all off and kill them all or you can get killed or you can leave. Those are your options. The lawyer won't tell you this because the lawyer doesn't have a fucking clue at this point. But those are your options. But you don't own that land. You never fucking did. Okay? There was never some spiritual connection to it. I have great fucking memories of that beach growing up. And I have great fucking memories of that door being closed. Believe me. You don't own the fucking land. But you definitely don't own it if your neighbors want to kill you. I hope people get this. It's kind of a connected theme in this podcast. If you live in a city and you think that just because you have a piece of paper that says, you know, this is your legal King County property, well, that's all great. But last summer, I saw a lot of condo owners with nasty-ass faces in the morning when I was videotaping because the mayor of fucking Seattle decided to entertain a fucking commie snake pit in Capitol Hill using City of Seattle resources. Tell me again how you fucking own that piece of property. Please. You sound absurd. You sound fucking stupid. But tell me again when the mayor of your city uses city resources, money you paid to fuck you. Please tell me. Because you sound like a moron who's about to die. Once again, before we switch topics, here's a quote from Dr. Freckles. You own the land. You own it. Until your neighbors want to kill you. And then it becomes a state of war. And you know what? Before we leave, let's meditate on Syria. Syria. 
Um, we have been fucking with the nation of Syria since the Obama administration. We were very close to sending in a lot of conventional forces in 2013, but it still ended up happening. Under Trump, we still ended up sending in the forces to secure the oil, the oil that's ours. Please, you stupid motherfucker in Seattle, tell me how you own the fucking land and then give a seminar to the fucking Syrians who got their fucking land ripped off. You stupid fuck. Tell me how you own the fucking land. Tell me. Next topic. So, I'm feeling a bit sore, S-O-R-E, because I've been trying to get more exercise recently, but the only kind of exercise my brain will remotely accept is exer exercise that does something. So, I've been splitting wood. We, we sell wood. Um, the people I rent from sell it, and I've been splitting some because as of right now, I don't really have uh, any money. Um... I may have some in the future, but I don't have any right now. So I try to help out, and it turns out that the splitting of the wood helps me too. It's pretty good exercise. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'll be splitting any today. I think I'll take today off, probably, because I'm pretty sore. But it's the good kind of sore. It's not the, my back is all, you know, fucking question mark, fucked up sore. It's the, I can feel my body repairing itself kind of um, sore. So it feels good. But I've been thinking about it because when I was a kid, I hated doing the firewood, the firewood shit. We did it every year. Our dad orchestrated the operation. And we got the firewood. And I think we cut and split six, seven cords a year. Maybe ten cords. I don't know. Twelve. We had a big old stack of wood behind our home at the at the beginning of every winter, at the end of every fall. A lot of alder, some fir, a little of this, a little of that. We had a wood stove upstairs. We had one downstairs. As a kid, splitting this wood, I didn't like it. I didn't like splitting it. I didn't like cutting it. And so I was thinking the other day that my dad in heaven must be laughing his ass off because he's seen me out there splitting wood and having a good time. And that's pretty weird, really. But I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson this week. It all became clear. The secret... The secret my dad had, the secret to why splitting wood is like drinking, drinking beer. You want to know what the secret is? It's rage. I had a lot of despair and sadness as a kid, but I didn't have enough rage. I needed more rage, more anger, you know, more of that 
that pure fire of rage, the rage that burns inside. I got a lot of that these days, brothers and sisters. I could chop a hundred cords of wood based upon the rage that comes to mind just by glancing upon, you know, Isvestia, I mean, excuse me, Epic Times, excuse me, Zero Hedge. Just a lot of rage. That's the key to splitting wood. If you want to know the key to splitting wood, it isn't what kind of maul you use. It isn't your technique. Yes, that's all going to help you with efficiency. But the key to being motivated to split a fucking cord of wood is to have that much fucking rage. You got that much in you. It's like our dad said growing up. This should have been the indication. When you heat yourself with wood, you get heated twice. Once when you split it, once when you burn it. But I think the heat he was talking about is the pure fire. Yeah, the pure fiery heat of rage. was a kid I didn't have enough of that pure fiery rage and I mean the wrathful rage the rage of knowing that you are morally correct I mean the Old Testament rage when you could pull out your Bronze Age sword and take care of business if some old piece of shit was living against God and living against you I think that's called open season you fuck the good news is grinkin' time is almost here. So it's good time to be splitting wood. It's a good time to be practicing with your bow, with your rifle. Grinkin' time's here, almost. Next topic. Next topic, bros and sisters and humans. So a lot of people these days like to talk about the Milgram experiment. And if you don't know what the Milgram experiment was, it was an experiment developed by Stanley Milgram in the early 1960s. And part of the genesis of the experiment was the whole, you know, Adolf Eichmann trial and the whole thing, you know, the human beings considering why did Germans become good Nazis and why did they become good soldiers and why did they participate in the final solution? How could so many good Germans kill so many good Jews? And so Stanley Milgram said, well, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to see what I can push a person to do. And for decades, it's been, it's been considered this kind of brilliant experiment. But I, I got to be honest with you. I sort of broke it down a year or so ago and said, listen, it's a flawed experiment. I went through all the reasons. I'm going to go through some of the reasons again. But I'm beginning to think that the Milgram experiment itself is worse than just a mistake. It could be a kind of deliberate academic fraud. You see, the thing is, during World War II, if you were Adolf Eichmann, you were planning things, 
you were having meetings, you were drinking coffee, but you weren't really going out and shooting a lot of Jews in the head. You weren't. I mean, he might have been able to. They may have given him a, a luger and said, go ahead and go down to the camps and kill people. But for the most part, he was involved in operations, which means he never had a creepy lab guy telling him to turn a creepy fucking dial so he could hear a creepy fucking scream on the other fucking end. There's a concept in modern military science called mechanical distance. Now, what does that mean? It means that during the first age of warfare, and I guess we could pick that as being the Bronze Age, roughly, but during the first age of warfare, roughly, whatever, let's say four or five thousand years ago, maybe six, we don't really know. But during those first eras of warfare, and maybe even the tribal warfare that precedes civilized warfare, if you wanted to kill a man, yes, you could have a stone and a sling. You could sling it and throw it. Yes, you probably had a bow and arrow. You probably had a spear-chucking device. There were lots of ways for you to launch weapons from a distance. But that, at the end of the day, almost every battlefield, up and through and until World War I, if you were going to kill a motherfucker, you often had to get right up close. Yeah, probably during the 19th century that began to shift. But prior to the American Civil War, at least, and definitely prior to the 19th century, at the end of the day, after you were done shooting your cannon, after you were done shooting your bow and shooting your rifles, once you'd shot your shot, you fix bayonet and you charge. You pull out your sword and you charge. You pull out your saber on your horse and you charge. And the killing you do is going to be eye to eye. And you will smell the blood. And you will smell the fecal matter from that last poop. The last poop that every dead person gives. That's the world that Milgram wants to talk about, but it is completely out of place. It is an anachronism, okay? Ancient battlefields didn't have laboratory people saying, stick the sword in that dude, ignore the screaming. If that laboratory dude came to the battlefield and some Spartan was there, probably the laboratory dude would have his head cut off. But the point is, that war, that type of war, was very brutal, very in-your-face, and yet in no way applies to the, to the Milgram experiment. The actual kind of warfare that the Milgram experiment is dissecting is warfare in the age of mechanical distance, warfare in the age of push-button warfare, warfare in the age of you never have to hear the screams. If you're dropping a bomb load from 10,000 feet over Berlin, yeah, you can see the explosions through your targeting device during World War II, but you never have to hear the screams. If you're dropping flammable material and explosives on Tokyo in 1944, yeah, you can see Tokyo catching fire, maybe, but you never have to hear the screams. If you were Adolf Eichmann during World War II and you were pushing paper about, if you wanted to go down to the local concentration camp, if such a thing were a thing, you could do it, but if Adolf Eichmann never wanted to hear one fucking scream, he never had to. And I can promise you his secretary, his assistant, his adjutant, whatever motherfucker worked for him, they didn't have to hear them either if they didn't want to. 
The reason why the Milgram experiment is worse than flawed, and the reason why it's kind of a psyop, is it's based upon the wrong fucking paradigm. The type of warfare where you could hear the screams was coming to the end in 1919. They knew that. They knew they couldn't do that shit anymore. They knew they had to do most of their killing from a distance because in reality, people don't want to just wholesale murder each other. During the first year, the first year, 1914, Christmas 1914, I believe, there was a kind of informer, informal, I need to drink some coffee here, during the, I think it was the first Christmas, could have been the second, World War I, there was an informal soldier's peace. There was a peace between all those fighting on the Western Front. And they went out into no man's land and they kicked the soccer ball and they exchanged, you know, greetings and Merry Christmas because the reality is ordinary British people and ordinary German people and ordinary French people and ordinary Europeans did not want to just murder each other. Yeah, there were people that wanted that to happen, but ordinary people thought that was bullshit. Despite all the movie propaganda you've seen in recent years about World War I, people did not want to, especially after the first few battles, continue that wretched fucking war. By 1917, the Western Front was very close to, well, how can I call this? Outright mutiny on all sides. The German army was close to mutiny. The British army was close to mutiny. The French army was close to mutiny. If the United States had not gotten involved in World War I in 1917, it is entirely plausible that that war would have ended as the last war because the soldiers of Germany would have turned their guns the other direction. The British would have turned their guns the other direction. And a whole bunch of fuckers that wanted that war would have been dumped in the fucking rivers. That's what should have happened. If that had happened, an entire century of tyranny and murder and commie bullshit could have been avoided. But then America came to save the day. The Milgram experiment is based on the idea that people will hear the screams. In reality, especially with the monkey herpes psyop, massive amounts of destruction are being done by scumbags that never have to hear one goddamn thing. A business gets destroyed, they don't hear shit. Someone ODs on heroin, they don't hear it. They're shuffling paper at the CDC. Somebody kills themselves or kills somebody else, uh -huh, that's not their fucking problem. They didn't hear it. Any of the effects of these psyops, these mind fucks, they don't have to hear any of it. They don't have to have anything to do with it. They can listen to their smart device, <laughs> smart device. They can listen to their smartphone. They can listen to some music from some random group and they can go into their own little private la la land. That's the reality. The Milgram experiment's bullshit. If some motherfucker in a big old facility near Vegas is flying a drone and he shoots somebody. He's looking at a video game screen. He's looking at an abstraction. That's mechanical distance. 
He's not hearing any screams. And to the extent possible, the person who designed that weapon system will make it look as much like a video game as possible. That's why none of it will seem real. So the Milgram experiment's flawed, but in, and it's kind of a psyop and a mindfuck and maybe even academic fraud. The other thing that's, that's mystifying is the focus on the, the liminal. Yeah, you can hear screams, but I think that intelligent, soulful people with any type of heart can sense the pain when it's big enough. And a lot of people right now do feel what's going on, and they don't need to turn on the fucking news. I don't even have to be in fucking Seattle to sense the disgustingness that flows out of those places in, in a kind of, I don't know, inexplicable sense, maybe supernatural sense. Those screams go a long way. Yeah, the Milgram experiment's bullshit. If you don't know it by now, you will soon. You will soon, and, and when you do hear the screams and you hear them yourself, they will be quite real. And how can I put this? When a person is protecting their children, they will kill and they will murder, they will destroy, they will steal. When someone is protecting their family, if they need to go get food, they don't care that you have kids. That's not how Grinkin time works. They'll kill you and your kids for your food. And no amount of having a property title will help you. There'll be no lawyer there, and if there were, the lawyer won't help you either. The Milgram experiment's flawed. You better figure that shit out, buddy. Last topic. I'm going to drink some coffee before I get to it. So, the people I rent a room from, they went to the dollar store and got, they got some cookies. And, and these are the little Dutch-made cookies, right? And I found out something curious because I was looking at the, the wrapper for the chocolate chip cookies and it said something funny in varying font size. You know where the font size gets bigger and then the size of the letters gets smaller? There's a version of these cookies that are just called chocolate chip cookies. You know, like when you were a kid, you'd go play ball with your friends. Hey, sonny boy, come home for some Kool-Aid and chocolate chip cookies, you fuck. Okay, mommy. Yeah. But then there's this other version of the little Dutch made chocolate chip cookies. And in addition to chocolate chip cookies, there's another word put in there. Smaller font, smaller than all the other font. It says flavored. So there's two sets of wrappers. There's a little Dutch made chocolate chip cookies. And there's a little Dutch made chocolate chip flavored cookies. And I started thinking about that. that. That's weird. That's interesting. Like, maybe that's a legal thing. They're not really chocolate chips. There's no real chocolate in there. There's no real cookie. It's flavored. It's a flavor. 
Yes. Perhaps there are two kinds of cookies that they make at Little Dutch Made. They make cookies for the people that the commissars, the apparatchniks within the Soviet hierarchy that are higher up. They get pretty much real, real chocolate chip. But we get the flavor. Now, of course, as a kind of pre-diabetic, de-diabetic, transcendentally sugar-diabetic motherfucker, I probably shouldn't be eating any Little Dutch Made cookies, you know, flavored or otherwise. But it struck, it struck me like, you know, in the age of where you can find anything in a Subway tuna sandwich, but, but tuna, in an age where they hide inflation by adding whatever fucking adulterant they can find, in an age where they have to re-engineer cookies with pretzels inside because they're running out of other materials that are too expensive. Oh, I'm sorry for ruining your day about that fucking thing. Chocolate chip flavor makes me think because it's not just that. It's almost implied there's a flavor of a chocolate chip cookie. And if you can mimic the flavor, then you can take broken glass and sand. You can take sawdust. You can take building riprap and concrete and asbestos. And you can mix it together with old grease and motor oil. And whatever dried out clumpus comes out of that rusty reactor they built somewhere in Ecuador. And then all of a sudden, you've got everything you need, but you don't have the flavor. You see, you can make it look like a chocolate chip cookie. You can make it crunchy like a chocolate chip cookie. But it tastes like death. Who knows? But when they're making these cookies in that Ecuadorian jungle, using whatever crap comes off the bleeding old Nazi reactor that was built by drunk old Nazi Milgram-style scientists who certainly didn't care about the screams. <sighs> you take whatever shit is, is falling apart off that reactor, you take the old spent, you know, spent, spent fuel rods, you mix in old motor oil from China, you mix in the sand and the sawdust, you mix in the broken glass. And now you have a little Dutch made chocolate chip flavored cookie. As long as you got the flavor right, the magical ingredient that makes old uranium taste like chocolate. Well, you get that, buddy. You get it by harvesting the skunk ape of, of the Amazon. Oh, but Dan, I've never heard of the skunk ape of the Amazon. Well, that's because you, you don't read books. You watch your smart device. But they take these skunk apes. These are the last living things they've found in the Amazon. They've tried to kill or beat down everything else. They take a skunk ape and they freeze-dry it. Whole skunk ape gets freeze-dried. 
They pulverize it. They mix it with diesel fuel. It tastes like chocolate. You add the flavor to the special uranium slurry. Now you have chocolate chip flavored cookie dough. And you just have to cook that shit. And you can cook that on the old fuel rod piles. You know, the ones that are bleeding off so many rims per hour, you fuck. Get out your Geiger counter. Yeah, it's weird. You probably don't think it's weird. I also found it weird when I was trying to look for um, digital media online pictures. You can find lots of pictures of little Dutch-made chocolate chip cookies, the, the box that the cookies come in, the wrapper. But you can't find a lot of pictures of the wrapper that are clear, that are easy to read, of the flavored cookies. And it just makes me think maybe that's a little secret they're trying to keep. Just a little dollar store secret, you know, hey, get some cookies for a dollar. They're made in Ecuador. And this is the planetary status report for Saturday, December the 4th, 2021. In a few days, it'll be Pearl Harbor Day, the day that Wild Bill Hickok killed John F. Kennedy and started the Civil War. Yes, we will celebrate the victories over the Gombublek peoples and the Frotec realm. We will celebrate our final victory over the Neo-Sumerians. So, you know, prior to Pearl Harbor Day, happy Pearl Harbor Day, previous to it. It's not there yet. It isn't here for a few more days. And I hope you take out your, your ceremonial gomblek and you take out your bubliol and you mix your own Drimbic slurry. And you sit there by the edge of the road. You sit there on your city block drinking your slurry. And you remember that day in 1941 when Wild Bill Hickok killed JFK.